0: Good to see you guys, second week in a row. Um, I always really enjoy getting to do two weeks in a row and I I have this bad habit now that I've done it a couple times is I always just pick too big of a a passage and then I basically teach both sermons twice because they're always super connected Um, and that kind of happened again with the passage of Romans that we're in. So if you remember last week, We were talking about Romans 2, 17 through 29. As you can see, we're going to go back over verses 25 to 29, because I think they're really important to transition us into the beginning of chapter 3, as we're getting closer and closer um, to a much more exciting um, part of the book of Romans. And... It's going to be really hard for me not to spoil the end of chapter 3 because everything that we're talking about points to the end of chapter 3 and everything that he's been talking about, the first two chapters of this book all point to the end of chapter 3. So just stick with me on that. But we're going to go back a little and then we're going to move forward into chapter 3. So let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that your word is good. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you. That our whole lives you have been faithful. You have been so, so good. And when we felt like you weren't good, your goodness was coming after us. You were doing everything you could to show how good you are to us. And we praise you for that. Open up our hearts. Help us to be changed by your word today. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so yesterday was Sarah and I's, I don't believe in month anniversaries, um, but our daughter turned two months old, so that's kind of a big deal because she should be sleeping through the night and she's not, so I'm, it's a big deal to me. Um, she actually did really well last night, two stretches of four hours, which is better than it's been because a couple nights ago, I was, I was about ready to just throw in the towel and be like, yeah, whatever, I don't even, just cry forever. But two months old, um, Sarah and I have been married a year and a couple months, something like that, A year and almost three months now. So um, I just felt like it was the right time for me to start giving relationship advice because I've made it over a year. So um, (laughs) I was talking with Sarah about this this morning and I was just thinking, I was like, what is one of the scariest things that you can be asked in a relationship? And as a guy, the question that I kind of came up with that's the scariest is, what do you prefer? Or which do you prefer? Which sounds like it's not that big of a deal. It's like she's asking you what you like. Um, But anytime I've been asked that question, it's actually really, really scary and really, really dangerous um, because there isn't a right answer. So here's a clue. The, The easiest way to answer this question is to ask it right back and go, well, which do you prefer? And then if you're lucky... She just wanted to tell you what she preferred, and then you can agree with it. But sometimes she goes, no, I want to know what you think. I want to know which one you like best. I want to know what you prefer, which is horrible. And then the absolute, the absolute worst answer that she can give you when you ask the question back is, I know which I prefer. I want to know what you think. Because at that point, then you know there's a right answer and a really, really wrong answer. So we were talking about this this morning, and Sarah was doing her hair, and I was like, that's the one. That's the question. Because Sarah colors her hair every so often. And um, when I met her in 2010, her hair was dark and super curly. Uh, Now it's usually blonde. And every time before she goes back to get her hair done, She asks me that question. She goes, well, what do you prefer? Do you you like my hair blonde? Do you like it brunette? But now, this even complicates it more. It's not just either or. Now there's a third option because sometimes her hairdresser does really blonde. I call it very blonde. I don't think that's probably the proper thing. But it's basic, it's not platinum, but it's like all blonde. Like there's no roots whatsoever. Like it's all blonde. So there's all blonde. Then there's blonde with some, it's kind of like highlights. And then there's brunette. So that's like, and then there's really levels of brunette too, but I'm not even going to get into that this morning. This is all what I've learned in a year. So that's, I feel like that's impressive. So she asked me that question. She's like, well, which do you prefer? And I was like, I love them all. But that's not the right answer because she wants a choice. And I'm like, the dangerous part here is as soon as you pick one, you automatically hate everything else she's ever done that isn't what you just said. So you have to tread so carefully and, like, and yet you can't. So if I were to say, for example, I was like, well, I like it when it's like blonde highlights, you know, not too blonde, not too dark. She goes, oh, so you hated it dark. And I was like, well, no, I didn't hate it dark. I, I liked it dark. I just, you, you asked which I liked better. And she's like, well, if you like that better, that means you hate the other. And I was like, well, that's not necessarily true. Um, <laughs> because there, there's levels, it's like one's a 10, one's an eight, one's a seven, and she's like, oh, there's a seven, and you're like, oh, shoot, I should have never used numbers, and, and you kind of get stuck in this thing where you're going, I said one thing, I said, I like it this way, and what she heard is, I hated it that way, <laughs> and that can happen, and eventually, we talk through it, and she knows she's kind of being silly, and she's like, I like it better that way, too, and I'm like, oh, good, I got the right answer, perfect, and uh, and then we're all happy and she comes home and luckily she always tells me when she gets her hair done so I don't have to like guess and be like, oh, did you get your hair? I always know. So that's easy because I can go, oh, it looks great. And um, I bring that up because we looked at verses 25 through 29. It's a lot about circumcision. So it has nothing to do with hair and we're not going to relate that to anything. But I, I, I look at it now in the context of, of the beginning of chapter three and what I see happening with Paul and in this passage, he's talking to the Israelite people, the Jewish people, and it's a serious miscommunication because Paul is saying one thing and the Jews are hearing something totally different. And it's a little similar to that idea of like, which do you prefer? Well, I, I prefer this. Oh, so you hate this? It's like, no, I didn't say that. I, I said I like this. So it's kind of that idea of going, Paul is trying to communicate something and the Jews go, oh, well, this is what I heard. You hate us, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to go through this, and we're going to look at verses 25 through 29 again. So open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 2, verse 25. I like it. So we're going to go through this real quick, because we broke it down last week, and I just kind of want to highlight it for those of you who weren't here and those of you who were, just a quick reminder. So it says, the Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. So there's already a lot packed in there. Verse 28, for you are not a true Jew, this is where it gets a little personal, just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God and true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it is a change of heart produced by the spirit and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So this is a big passage, it's a big topic, we talked about it a lot last week and I just want to highlight what Paul, kind of a synopsis of what these four verses are saying and I think what Paul's getting at is he's going there's an inward change from the Holy Spirit that needs to happen in your life for you to belong to God and to belong to God's family. Now, an outward change of circumcision, uh, uh, trying to modify your behavior, trying to act good enough will not suffice because uh, the change of heart is only produced by the Holy Spirit. That's what it says. The letter of the law isn't important. It's not important that you get circumcised. What's important is that you are obeying God's law. What's important is that you're living your life in a way that's produced and changed by the Holy Spirit. And I talked about this in the ESV it says, um, in verse 25, right at the beginning it says, but if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than a circumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? So in the ESV, there's a phrase and it says, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So the very thing that you think identifies you as belonging to God is actually the very thing that identifies you that you don't belong to God. So as long as you are trying to accomplish being good enough on your own, you're only proving that you're not good enough on your own. So that's what Paul's trying to say. And then I just wanna go through a few bullet points. So we're gonna look through, this is what Paul is trying to communicate to them, right? So this is, I like when it's blonde, highlights. That's what this is. You misunderstand God's plan. Let me help you understand. Your behavior modification is worthless without inward change. Only the Holy Spirit can change you. Your heart is what makes you right with God, not your behavior. This seems pretty good. It's pretty simple. When I read 25 through 29, it's very straightforward that this is what Paul is trying to say. He's like, let me help you understand that you can't do this on your own. You need Jesus. But this is, is what the Jewish people hear. You've been wrong your whole life. Everything you've sacrificed means nothing. God's promises don't even matter, including your circumcision, because Gentiles are now God's chosen people. So this passage is supposed to be encouraging. It's supposed to go, hey, you don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to go through all these rituals if you'll just let God change your heart. And what the Jewish people are hearing is, You suck, you've never been right, you've wasted your whole life doing things that don't matter and now God loves other people more than you. Now, is that what Paul said? No. But that's what they heard because he's kind of turning their entire lives upside down. Everything that their lives have been based on, the law, their understanding of God's law and religion is kind of getting shattered by saying it's not what you do that makes you belong to God, it's who you let him make you become. And Paul is trying to communicate the gospel. He's trying to give them a picture of something they understand, going, you understand circumcision. You understand that means you belong to God's family. But what I'm telling you is that that's just an outward thing. You have to belong to God in your heart. And that can only be done by the Holy Spirit. So really, Paul is trying to lighten the burden and go, you don't have to do this on your own. And what the Jewish people think he's doing is saying, you stink, and everything you do and have ever done is worthless. So, now this is when we transition to chapter three, because in chapter three, these first eight verses, Paul is very aware of his audience. And I do appreciate this because he kind of, this is a letter, this isn't a conversation, but he writes it in a way that really feels like a conversation. Um, For people like me that overthink everything, I have conversations with people in my head before I ever speak to them, because I go through every possible thing that they could say and what I'm going to say to it, and Paul is doing that here, so it kind of helps me identify with him, because he's starting chapter 3 going, okay, I know what I just said, and I'm pretty sure I know what you heard, so I'm going to help you understand more clearly what I was trying to say, not necessarily what I think you might have heard. So now we're in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. Paul's asking this question going, this is probably what you're thinking. He goes, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Because those are probably the questions they're asking. They're going, then, then why are we even called God's chosen people? Why did God ever make promises to Abraham and Moses and give us the law if it was all worthless? What's, even, what's the point? What's the advantage? Why did we ever get circumcised? Why did God tell us to do that if it doesn't matter? And Paul goes, yes, there are great benefits. And he only tackles one because at the end of chapter three, he tackles all the rest in one passage. And he goes, first of all, The Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. And some other translations and and different things, it says the oracles of God. So it's talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic law, that messianic promise, the, the promise that God is going to rescue his people. He entrusted the Jews with that. Now, I think... The word "entrust" is really interesting because it it isn't just like he gave it to you like it's not a gift, right? Because you on your birthday you'll get a gift, you go, oh, this is great, I love this. This is for me. It's you know it's a celebration of your life or whatever else you're getting a gift for. And he doesn't say that he gave them the revelation of God or the teachings of God or the oracles of God. It says he entrusted him. So I looked up the definition of entrust, and this is what it says: to charge or invest with a trust or responsibility. Now I put invest and responsibility in italics because I think they're very, very important to our understanding of what Paul is trying to say here. Is he's going, God didn't just tell you and reveal himself to you so that you could be special and privileged. He trusted, he invested the revelation of himself to the Jewish people so that it would create a responsibility on their part to then share that with others. Because when you make an investment, you're actually doing it. An investment is something kind of active, right? If you invest money, you're expecting it to make more money. If you invest time, you're expecting there to be a dividend that's paid. So that's what God's saying. He's going, I didn't just give you something to keep and be like, man, I feel really good about this. This is a great gift that God gave us. He helped us understand him. Because that's what the law is there for. God gave the Jewish people the law so that they would understand who he was and understand his character and be able to have a relationship with him. And so they have a responsibility to share this revelation of God. God. And it's like I was saying last week, I think we, instead of trying to be Paul and going, hey, we can really help people understand this, I think we have to look at ourselves from the perspective of the Jewish people because that's, that's who I relate to the most is I'm the one who isn't always faithful with that investment. I'm not always faithful with the responsibility of making sure people Understand the character of God. Remember last week we read that verse in verses 17 through 24 that we didn't get to again today and it says that the Gentiles, unbelievers, blaspheme the name of God because of you. So what Paul's saying is the fact that you're not representing the truth about God correctly is making other people believe false things about God. Now, when I think about investments, I often think about Matthew 25. And I actually, I think it was definitely God's timing. I was reading this, I was reading through Matthew in my devotionals, and I came across this chapter yesterday. So in Matthew 25, there's a story of these three men, and there's, there's a man who is going away on a trip, and he has these three servants that he wants to give money to. So it says that he gives money to them based on their abilities. So each of the men get a different amount. So the first guy gets five bags of gold or silver or whatever. The second guy gets three. The last guy gets one. And that right there, I always thought I was the guy that got five bags. I'm pretty sure I'm the guy that got one bag. Like, yeah, I'll give you some, but I can't, you know, it's based on ability. Um, And I think that that is kind of significant because we know that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. So if you're a one-bag person, that's okay and it's important and you need to be faithful with that one bag. If you're a five-bag person, you need to be faithful with that five bags. But the guy gives him different amounts and he says, okay, I'm gonna be back. Take care of this money for me. So the first guy with the five bags, he invests it, he doubles it. The second guy with the three bags, he invests it, he doubles it. So they're both doing well. The guy with the one bag um, makes sense based on his ability. He buries it in the ground so that he doesn't lose it. And their, uh, their leader comes back and he goes, okay, Where's the money I gave you? The first guy goes, hey, I made five more bags with it. And he goes, well done. You've been faithful. You've been great. Second guy is like, I made three more bags. He's like, awesome. You did great. You were faithful with what I gave you. The third guy goes, well, I know that you're, you're kind of tough or I, I didn't want to waste what belongs to you because I know it's precious and it's so precious that I didn't want to screw it up. So, so I, I didn't take any risks and I buried it. And his response was, take, he told one of his other servants, take what he had and give it to the man with the five bags. And then he threw him out of his household. Now, the leader says, to those who are faithful with what they are given will be given more. And I I always kind of wondered what this story meant but in the context of what we're reading in Romans it really clicked for me that I think they're talking about influence I think what he's saying is based on your abilities you can you can have different levels of influence and if you're faithful with your influence God can give you more influence if you're faithful with what God gives you he'll give you more if you're not faithful with what he gives you he'll take it away and he'll give it to somebody else who will be faithful with it. So two invested it and took some risks and tried to make more money. One buried it. How often do we do that with what we've been entrusted, right? We've been entrusted with a relationship with God. We've been entrusted with knowing what Jesus wants to do in people's lives, in our family, in our coworkers. We know that he wants to have a relationship with them. We've been given the responsibility, God has invested that truth in us, to see a dividend paid. Now are we the servant that buries it? And we're so afraid of screwing up or we're so afraid of being rejected that we go, you know what, I'm just going to do what I can, keep this money safe so that I don't screw anything up. Or are we gonna be one of the other two that takes a risk, that's going, I'm going to take this responsibility and I'm going to share it, I'm going to try to grow it, I'm going to try to make my influence greater and truly be faithful with what I've been entrusted with, which for us is the gospel. For the Jewish people, it was God's law, who he was, his character. So right there, Paul goes, okay, the thing that you have an advantage of, the thing that made circumcision worthwhile is that God was setting you apart. He was entrusting you with the revelation of himself so that you could share it with others. Now, Paul continues to have this kind of rhetorical argument with the Jewish people in verses three through four, and he tries to do his best to kind of come up against their objections, their arguments, their frustration, their sarcasm, as we'll see, their stupidity, in my opinion. So in verses 3 through 4, this is what Paul responds to next. He says, true, some of them, so some of the Jewish people who were entrusted, were unfaithful. But just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. Now Israel was not faithful to relay the message that God had given them, the revelation of who God was. They were not a good reflection of God's character. If you're wondering, for examples, read the book of Judges, that's just literally over and over how Israel failed to be a revelation of God's character. And so Paul asks the question, he goes, yes, some of them were unfaithful. Some of us are unfaithful. He goes, does that mean God's not going to be faithful to what he promised? Does that mean God is going to change his mind because you guys didn't do your part? And he says, no, of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. God's character is the same. Our success and our failure don't change who he is. Don't change the promises that he made. Because he is going to be faithful no matter what, even when no one else is. Here's the next part. This is where the Jewish people start getting grumpy and angry and kind of dumb. This is where they start to kind of get really sassy, I would say. Verse 5. But some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair them for him to punish us? So they go, well, the fact that we mess up a lot is actually really good for God's PR because not only does it show how much better he is. In fact, he probably shouldn't even judge us or punish us for doing what's wrong because really we're doing him a favor and we're kind of making him look better, right? It's, it's so absurd. That's like being like, well, I shouldn't be punished for punching someone in the face because you know what that did? It actually made everyone who didn't punch someone in the face look so much nicer. So really, I should get a reward for punching someone in the face because I made everyone else look really nice by them not punching people. It's just, it's absurd. It's so ridiculous. So then it goes, this is merely a human point of view, obviously. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? So they're going, God shouldn't judge us because us screwing up is really helping him look better. And Paul's going, if he didn't judge justly, if he wasn't completely holy, completely just, if he wasn't completely righteous, then he wouldn't even be qualified to judge the people that you think are evil right? So if God's going to let some people off the hook for doing what's wrong, he has to let everyone off the hook. And that's not who God's character is. God's character is he wants the best for people. He is the one who is going to separate those who have been obedient, those who have not been obedient, those who know Christ, those who haven't. He's the one who will judge on the final day. And so Absurdity number one, the Jews say God can't punish or judge our sin because it helps people see how great he is. We're doing him a favor. He should thank us, not judge us. And that's, that's just so absurd. But sometimes I feel like we kind of get that mentality every once in a while too. And it's not that we really believe that, it's that we're frustrated because the Jewish people didn't really believe this. They know it's not true, but they're just so frustrated. They're like, well, if we stink so much, maybe God should thank us for stinking so much because he's so great. That's kind of the tone that I, I'm picking up on here. And Paul is calm and he just goes, God can't call what is sin good because if he isn't oh, completely just, he's not qualified to judge the entire world. Here is the next part, verses seven and eight. This is where we're gonna end for today and then we're gonna pick up next week in verse nine. But some might still argue because they're dumb. How can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. At this point, with absurdity number two, the Jewish people are saying, "Uh, but me being dishonest probably isn't even a sin. So now they're going, well, if he has to punish sin, then me lying probably isn't a sin at all because it's actually highlighting how truthful God is as we've talked about. So actually, it's not even a sin because it makes God look good. (laughs) And this time Paul's like, I love it because Paul is just so done with them. He doesn't even come up with like a real counter-argument. He just goes, those who say that stuff deserve to be condemned. Like if you're going to have that attitude, you kind of deserve what's coming to you. If you're going to be that annoyed and frustrated and sarcastic and, and, and hostile, then you're going to kind of get what's coming to you. Now we look through all this, and this is really all a setup. For the rest of chapter three. In the next section, in verses nine through 20, Paul kind of closes this argument that we've been reading about in chapters one and two. He goes, you know, he talked about how we all are on that list of sins, all on that list of people that have exchanged God's truth for a lie. He specifically tried to help the Jewish people understand that it's not about what you do on the outside, it's not about your behavior. It's about what the Holy Spirit does in your heart that makes you belong to God. And in verses nine through 20, he's gonna just kind of close that all up, put a nice bow on it, basically explaining how everybody sucks. And then in verse 21 is when it's gonna flip. And I wish we could cover it all today because it's so exciting and this is kind of this kind of feels like a drag, right? It probably doesn't feel like a drag because it was quick, but it kind of feels like a drag, like, man, we kind of stink. We, we, we aren't measuring up. We're, we're going, you know, what's the advantage of doing what's right and being good? And he's going, well, that's not what it's about. That's not the advantage that you're getting. And I called this passage the hope. And, and the point of that was kind of to, to go, well, this isn't very hopeful. This is kind of, the, all of Romans has kind of been a downer, right? At the very beginning in verse 16, we, we see Paul kind of go, the gospel's going to answer all these questions. But then he doesn't give it to them in their entirety. He goes on to go, and this is how everyone is worthy of judgment and everyone will be judged. And these are all the things that we do wrong. And then Jewish people, these are all the things that you believe that aren't true, So where is the hope? And I promise it's coming in chapter 3. But in this passage, I just, I kind of read it and I was like, man, this is kind of a downer. And I was like, where is the hope? And I think Paul does a great job of setting this foundation that he kind of bums everybody out about our own attempts to be right with God. But if we look at verses 3 and the beginning of verse 4 he says this, true some of them were unfaithful just beca- but just because they were unfaithful does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar God is true. That's the hope. The hope is that it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on our performance. It doesn't, per- it doesn't depend on our understanding. It doesn't depend on how faithful we are to be like Jesus. It doesn't depend on how faithful we are to do the right things and show up for church and give faithfully and all those things are important and they're all being obedient to God. But at the end of the day, what Paul's saying is, even when you screw up, God is faithful. God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He is still going to be good. Even when everyone else is a liar, God is true. And I love that that he doesn't say, "God tells the truth, or he's a truther." Everyone's a liar, God's a truther." No, he goes, "God is true. It's about his character. It's not about what he does. It's about who he is. And that's the hope. The hope of Romans is that it doesn't depend on us. The hope of these passages, these last 20 verses that we've talked about over these two weeks, is even though we've messed up, even though we feel like we don't measure up, that's okay because God is gonna be faithful to his promise to give us a way to be right with him. At first it was the law, and Paul's gonna explain later why the law couldn't make it happen, why we couldn't live up to the law. And God's plan with Jesus is the one that can give us hope because it all depends on who God is, not on what we can do, not on how we perform. So the hope today is that even when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Even if we are a liar, even if our lives aren't telling the truth about who God is, God is true.